Hey, Slava Connection listeners. By now, you're probably tired of sitting in Zoom meeting calls all day, so why not take a break and listen to a podcast of a Zoom meeting call? I had the chance to connect with Professor Stephen Slick for this episode. He's the director of the Intelligence Studies Project here at UT, and he's also my professor. There's good intelligence and bad intelligence. There's not Republican intelligence and Democratic intelligence. He has a lot of great stories to tell about his 28 years with the CIA, so take a listen. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Slick, thank you very much for joining us. You are a professor here at UT, and you're also my professor. We're very excited to have you. Well, thank you, Larry. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation, and um, thanks for uh, acknowledging to everybody else that we've seen each other just two days ago in a, in a uh, graduate school seminar here, and so it's nice to see you again this week. <laughs> Uh, I actually wanted to sort of just jump right into it. You are currently the director of the Intelligence Studies Project here at UT, but you also have spent 28 years in the CIA's clandestine service. Uh, So I was hoping to touch on that a little bit. You had five assignments abroad, but your very first one was in Eastern Germany. In what capacity were you there in 1989? Okay, so uh, thanks for that. Yes, I'm in fact here at UT. I'm a professor of practice, which means that my my uh, experiences are more impressive or more more uh, useful to folks than my actual academic background. And uh, I have a lot of fun uh, teaching courses here. But as you said, I spent 28 years with the Central Intelligence Agency uh, before I came to the University of Texas. And it, it strikes me then and it strikes me now that that was a, that was a tremendous privilege. And I'm anxious to talk to your listeners and talk to you uh, more about that intelligence plays an important role in how we defend ourselves here in the United States, how we uh, uh, arrive at our national security uh, policies, and in some cases, how we implement them. And so I had the opportunity to be involved in, in some of that over the decades, as you described. But my first tour, again, uh, through nothing more than serendipity, I'd like to claim it was it was. Uh, well-planned and and perfectly orchestrated on my part. But as a young operations officer of the CIA in 1989, I was uh, sent to language training and I was taught uh, German. I studied German at the Foreign Service Institute in the Washington area, along with my my colleagues from the State Department. And then in the summer of 1989, uh, my wife and I, since I was married at the time, and this is very much a uh, a family business in many senses, um, were sent to East Germany. So I was assigned to be the third secretary and vice consul at the U.S. Embassy to the German Democratic Republic in East Berlin. And we probably don't have enough time today, but that's a long title, and there's a lot, there's a lot caught up in there having to do with the status of post-World War II Berlin. But as you can tell by the dates, 1989 is, is, uh, is uh, stuck in everybody's mind as, as the, the season of changes of the Vende, as they say in German. And I was fortunate enough to be there for most of that. And just, just good luck. I would like to claim that I'd planned it, 
and knew that all these momentous things were going to happen while we were there, but uh, not true. So, so what was it like in 1989? What, what, we'd love to give our listeners a little bit of historical context for those, perhaps if they're not fully aware of what was happening, despite the obvious. Sure. Well, in 1989, um, I mean, in retrospect, it all seems entirely clear. We were months away from the, uh, the, the, the collapse of the uh, East German state, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and two years uh, ahead of the of the um, dissolution of the Soviet Union, but none of that was apparent in the summer of 1989, when we when we drove through uh, through the crossing point um, into East Berlin, and so it was uh, just another year in the life of the of the thousand year Reich of Eric Honecker. Uh, people who were alive and in government service at that time will remember that. East Germany was a uh, member of the Warsaw Pact, the Moscow-based uh, security alliance. They were, in fact, in fact, regarded as one of the most stalwart, reliable, and potent, frankly, allies uh, of the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And the people who were running East Germany when we arrived were uh, a bunch of octogenarians, uh, right? They, it was not a young group. They were mainly over 80 years old, starting with the general secretary, Eric Honecker, uh, himself. Anyway, so a group of very old uh, white men uh, in, the, uh, in the upper reaches of the Socialist Unity Party and the East German state were running a, a militarized, very conservative uh, police state. And of course, the, the territory of East Germany was the Soviet sector of occupied Germany after the end of World War II, that the Soviets had transitioned from, as I say, an occupied sector of Germany into a, a, a satellite state that they called the German Democratic Republic. Um, they referred to it as the first workers and, and peasants state on German soil. And they were quite, quite proud of their proletarian roots. Uh, but in fact, and as the events that unfolded in the fall of 1989 made clear, uh, it was a brutal uh, dictatorship, a totalitarian police state where people didn't have rights, uh, weren't allowed to participate in choosing uh, who their leaders were, uh, played no role in shaping government policies, the, the antagonism, the, um, the, the wall that separated East and West Berlin and the fence that separated East and West Germany, the fact that uh, the people were literally prisoners, 17 million of them in this small state, unable to escape or even travel uh, like modern Europeans. And so it was quite stayed, uh, quite stable, uh, East Germany had been that way for many, many years, and it was regarded as actually one of the least um, least uh, attractive or exciting assignments uh, behind the Iron Curtain, just because of the, the effectiveness of the security services there and the, um, and the uh, long-running running rule of people like Honecker. Uh, nobody expected much change, and anybody who tells you that they did 
and that they foresaw the fall of the Berlin Wall later that fall was is is fibbing to you uh, because because we were there and meeting and talking about events in East Germany every day in the U.S. Embassy, and there was uh, there were very few hints to discern that uh, big changes were coming. Did you actually happen to witness the the fall of the wall? Well, that's that's more of an embarrassing story. But uh, since since you ask, I'll 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 have to correct the record. I've not written a memoir, and I've vowed to to many people that I won't. Uh, but if if I did, this is probably some history I would rewrite. It, as a matter of fact, uh, in November the, of, of 1989, the, the weekend that the, the Berlin Wall was opened, accidentally, uh, for those of your listeners who, who, who know the story of what transpired that evening, uh, we were not in East Berlin. My wife and I had, um, had arranged for tickets on the French duty train, which traveled between the occupied French sector and occupied Berlin. And so I was uh, in a bathtub in, a, in a, a small pension in Strasbourg, France. And I could see through the door of, of the room we were in, the television was on, and I saw them breaking into the uh, regular programming and showing these people scurrying around on top of the Berlin Wall. And I asked my wife, what's going on? Uh, and I hopped out and took a look at it. And, and in fact, as, as President George Bush later used as a title for his, for his memoir, uh, it was a world transformed. But I was not part of it. Um, I was away from my duty station, which I'm a little embarrassing to say, maybe the most exciting and consequential evening of my, of my professional life. I, I was, uh, I was a 12 hours train ride away in a bathtub in France after enjoying a lovely meal. And in fact, we couldn't get back to our home in East Berlin for about two and a half days because of the, the euphoria and the, and the migration, the waves and waves of people who were coming out of East Germany and into the West, you actually couldn't go the other direction. So a number of American diplomats who had been at the Marines' birthday ball that evening, happened to be the, the, the uh, birthday of the U.S. Marine Corps, which is celebrated by diplomats all over the world, it, it was held in West Berlin. And so many of the folks from the embassy in East Berlin went to that uh, birthday party that evening and the wall opened and the floods of people started coming across into the West. They started dancing and chipping away at the Berlin wall. And, and my colleagues couldn't even get back to their homes in East Berlin, same as me for several days because of the, because of the current, the flow of people out. It was a one directional movement. Um, Anyway, it was a tremendously exciting time to be anywhere in Europe, but I can't claim that I was actually there that evening, even though our apartment was about a block and a half from, uh, from the wall and the crossing point into the, into the French sector on Bornholmer Strasse. Well, if you ever do end up writing a memoir, we'll be sure not to come in and correct you. Uh, you can leave the bathtub details out. <laughs> It'll be a podcast exclusive. Now, I, I like to just tell people you're welcome. <laughs> as if I had something to do with it, but that would be complete fantasy. I wasn't even there. From there, uh, I know you moved on to India. 
and showed in capacity in India and, and from there to Ukraine. What years were you in Ukraine? What were you doing uh, at that time? Yeah, so within the, the CIA, I was I was an officer in the Directorate of Operations. And these are the folks, as you know, and many of your listeners know, who are responsible for recruiting and handling spies. And when the president so directs for conducting covert action activities. And these are people who learn foreign languages and move around overseas and, in my case, are assigned to official cover positions, meaning they work for the U.S. government in a foreign capital. But in addition to their diplomatic responsibilities, they also have that added responsibility of acquiring information from, from human sources, classic, classic uh, espionage. And so within the CIA and within that Directorate of Operations, I was assigned to something called the Soviet East European Division. And we were interested principally in learning about the Soviet Union and its satellite states uh, while they were still in existence and, and, and loyal to the, the Soviet Union. And so that was, that was my professional specialty, along with many others in the agency. And so after, as you said, a, a, um, an enjoyable tour in India, which was a little outside my, my region of, of interest, I was asked to return back and uh, help open our, our station in Kiev, Ukraine. As you know, in 1991, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, U Ukraine became newly independent, as the expression goes. And the first time, actually, since, since I think it was 1917, that the Ukrainians had actually in, enjoyed independence and the opportunity to govern their own affairs. Anyway, so it was an exciting time, and, and I arrived with the second group of uh, diplomats and intelligence officers to Kiev, and it was challenging in many, many respects. Kiev and Ukraine are very, very complicated topics even today. I have a number of strong impressions, even though it's been more than two decades since I was there. The Ukrainian people are wonderful and warm and were hospitable and excited at the prospects of their freedom and choosing their own leaders and developing their economy and traveling. So it was a, it was a time of great hope. On the other hand, it was possible to see that the seeds of what were going to be long-term problems for Ukraine were, were already sown. This divide, which is much discussed between a Russian-speaking Eastern Ukraine and a Ukrainian-speaking, westward-looking Western Ukraine. Those were, were evident to everybody, uh, even in the early 1990s. And the state and the leaders of the new Ukrainian state were going to have to deal with them. These, these were serious problems, serious differences of perspective and view of Ukraine's uh, role in the region and role in the world and aspirations whether Ukraine should be a, a state that's looking at that time to join the European Union, possibly enter a seed to the uh, NATO military alliance led by the United States, or conversely look east, as they had traditionally uh, to Moscow, and their economy was linked to the Russian economy, and they, they were members of the Commonwealth of Independent States, the CIS, the alliance of former Soviet states. And so these, these tensions existed in Soviet society, the, the, the last quality or characteristic that was painfully obvious uh, early in Ukraine's experience in self-governance was the, the corruption, official corruption, public corruption, finding officials who are interested and willing to serve in government and do so for the good of the people rather than 
to line their own pockets was hard then and it's hard now in Ukraine. And it's, it's been a, obviously a serious impediment to Ukraine's growth and prosperity in the, in the two decades since we left there was uh, instilling a culture of public service and resisting the temptation to, uh, as I say, line your own pockets or serve your own needs rather than those of your people. And to this day, I think Ukraine may have suffered through some of the worst political leadership of any state on the planet. I'd like to be optimistic and paint a scenario where, you know, Ukraine emerges democratic and prosperous, but that's not today. Let's move on from Ukraine and get into your posting in Hungary. After that, uh, your involvement with Balkan operations, uh, which was around the turn of the century, uh, 1998 to 2000s. Uh, could you give us a little bit of insight on what you were working on? We arrived in, in Budapest, uh, one of my favorite cities in the world, one of the most beautiful cities I've ever, ever been to, uh, had the pleasure to live in. And, and when we arrived there, the task was, was pretty straightforward. We, we were helping to prepare Hungary to accede to the NATO alliance, the Visegrad four states that most of your listeners will, will know were the, were the first states that, that entered, the first former Warsaw Pact members who were invited to accede to the NATO military alliance. And that was taking place in 1998. Uh, after several years of preparations, and, and those were extensive because these were different military systems. There were incompatible equipment, incompatible record keeping, incompatible uh, training and, and deployment procedures, uh, incompatible systems for safeguarding information, classified information. There were, of course, obvious counterintelligence concerns that perhaps by by bringing all these new uh, civilians and uniformed officers from these four so, uh, former Warsaw Pact states into the, the NATO enterprise, that, that even some of them might be cooperating with the, with the Russians and might be importing uh, security hazards, uh, penetrations possibly. And so there was a need to, to ensure the integrity of uh, of the military enterprises that were being brought into NATO. And so we were spending a lot of time on that. When I first arrived, of course, the wars were ongoing in the Balkans, as, as we've talked about before, depending on how you count, there were at least uh, five wars in the decades of the decade of the nineties in the former Yugoslavia. And, and these were underway when we arrived. The, the crisis that rose to the top, while we were in Hungary was, of course, the mistreatment of uh, ethnic Albanians in Kosovo by the Slobodan Milosevic regime uh, in Belgrade. And by late 1998, that had reached uh, uh, serious proportions. Uh, it was creating a humanitarian disaster as ethnic Albanians uh, walked into Kosovo and Macedonia trying to escape the violence that was being perpetrated on them by the interior ministry troops under Milosevic's control. And none of this was a surprise. None of this was new. By, by 1998 and 99, uh, the world knew who Slobodan Milosevic was. He was the butcher of the Balkans. 
and he he had earned that reputation. And part of his approach to remaining in power was to fuel ethnic hatred against Muslim Albanians and incite sort of long-standing Serbian prejudice and and hatred that literally goes back five or six hundred years to to the Ottoman era. In any event, that spilled over and became a matter of concern to the United States while we were in Hungary. And uh, we were involved in supporting the, the negotiations that Assistant Secretary of State Richard Holbrook was holding, uh, trying to ameliorate the, the humanitarian crisis in Kosovo. Well, that failed in the spring of 1999, and Holbrook pulled his negotiating party out of Belgrade. They closed the U.S. Embassy. We helped receive them in southern Hungary and sort of bring our State Department colleagues into safety. And then several days later, the NATO air war against Serbia began. And essentially every night for three months, NATO was bombing targets in Belgrade and Serbia and in uh, Kosovo, uh, trying to, again, uh, force Slobodan Milosevic to, to withdraw his interior ministry troops and stop persecuting the ethnic Albanians. It eventually was successful in that regard, but the U.S. Embassy never opened until after an election that Milosevic, regrettably from his standpoint, fortuitously from our standpoint, called. He lost. Uh, he was replaced by a, a new group of leaders that, that were more democratic and anxious to settle differences with the West. And the United States government, at least while we were there in Hungary, did a, did a good bit of work supporting the U.S. diplomatic effort to speed Milosevic's uh, demise, his, his fall from power. And it was very satisfying, although it didn't happen while we were still in Hungary, to see uh, Milosevic did eventually lose the election. He was replaced by more forward-looking democratic leaders, and he was eventually frog-marched into a helicopter and flown to The Hague, where he faced war crimes charges. But a tremendous amount of blood on his hands. But from my standpoint, the, the point being that one has to be extremely flexible in the clandestine service, in the American diplomatic service, in that we came to Hungary to, to welcome a new state into our, our military alliance, and we're working hard at that when a more serious priority arose to the South. Hundreds and thousands of lives were being lost in Kosovo. It became a U.S. diplomatic priority to stop that humanitarian disaster and to ensure that Milosevic didn't remain in office. And so all of a sudden, our focus shifted to the South, and we all became fast experts on all things Yugoslavia and and did our best to support U.S. diplomats like uh, Jim Dobbins and Bob Gelbard who did a terrific job bringing together European and Western pressure on Milosevic and supporting his political opponents and, and helping them compete and giving the, the people of Serbia the opportunity to choose a new leader, a new pact. Uh, and they did that. So it's rewarding to see, although it didn't happen until several months after we, we returned to the States. One thing I'm noticing as you're sort of discussing a lot of these rather complicated situations rapidly advancing and expanding uh, moments that are now very historical is 
sort of how it, it's simple to say like a decision was made or we decided on this and this was done when in reality I know there's so many so many personalities to deal with so many different avenues that have to be considered so much information that has to be taken in was it was it difficult from a general kind of standpoint to come to some of these decisions to get work done that you were actively trying to do in in particularly you know difficult events well this is a this is a function of of your perspective you know where where you're assigned in the US government and what your roles and responsibilities are it so there's a there's a, a tremendously complicated and interesting and instructive story to be told about uh, American policy in the Balkans. It goes back to the George H.W. Bush administration when the violence had started and it was unclear how serious it would become. Uh, the Europeans stepped in and were given that uh, given the lead in the early years to to try to address. These, these tensions and the, this violence that was erupting from the, the disintegration of the former Republic of Yugoslavia, the, the FRY, right? And so initially that became a European problem. The US government, frankly, in the middle of the Clinton administration was probably slower than it should have been to regard this as a, as a serious regional and international security problem that US leadership was required and that we need to, be, to get involved. Now that happens in the mid 90s right, with the Holbrook mission and the, and the efforts to stop the violence in Sarajevo and Bosnia, the Dayton Accords. And so the U.S. is heavily engaged by the middle of the decade of the 90s. And then we thought that was it until the violence erupted against the Kosovar Albania. So that's, that's an unfair and incomplete snapshot of sort of U.S. engagement. A lot of debates in Washington, a lot of smart people advocating for and against various options. And so that's a story that can be told. That's not a story I was part of. There were other people in Washington providing intelligence support, attending meetings, advancing policies, sending recommendations to the president. So all these, all these very important functions that allow U.S. presidents to make sound foreign policy decisions were underway in Washington, but that had very little, very little impact on my life. Right? I was assigned to a U.S. embassy overseas on the implementation of U.S. policy. So a decision is made right, that, that we're going to conduct e- extensive diplomacy and try to rally our allies and supporters in the region to bring pressure on Milosevic to stop the violence against the coast of Albania. Well, that's our job. And so we do that. In my case, in security service channels, in Ambassador Gelbard's case or Ambassador Dobbin's case, you know, dealing with uh, heads of state in the region and foreign ministers and others. And so what I'm trying to draw out is the distinction between the policymaking process, which was endlessly complicated, fiercely debated, books have been written about it that was unfolding in Washington. But when a decision is taken, the U.S. Embassy and the CIA stations and bases overseas in the region all have their marching orders. And this is what they're supposed to do. And they do it as creatively and energetically as they can. So the question of whether the U.S. should be involved, whether they should use military effort, military force, whether they should strike this target or that target to bring maximum pressure on the Milosevic regime, these were decisions made in Washington. I was the one getting phone calls at two in the morning every night from some watch office in Stuttgart telling me about a downed American airman and the need to conduct combat search and rescue operations out of southern Hungary in case an airman needed to be rescued. 
So these are very practical, pragmatic policy implementation that I was engaged in. Uh, later on in my career, I had the opportunity to, to work on some of these hard foreign policy problems from the Washington end. And I saw a different side of the U.S. intelligence community. But as a, as a young uh, manager of an overseas field station in Central Europe in 1998, decisions were made and I was given orders. And it, we carried those out to the best of our ability. And, and as I described, at the end of the day, the United States played an extremely helpful role in resolving the last of the wars that erupted in the former Yugoslavia. And I've always been optimistic since then, and pleased to see so many of the former Yugoslav states prospering and now members of the European Union, and several of which preparing themselves for membership in NATO. And that was all possible because of U.S. policy, U.S. influence, and U.S. show of strength. Well, I did actually want to ask, since you, you mentioned that you also have uh, served for the CIA in Langley, uh, how that sort of changed your life. Did, did the 2 a.m. phone calls stop while, while you were uh, stationed right outside Washington, D.C.? No, re- regrettably, the, the, the phones still ring at, at 2 a.m., but I had to smile to myself when you mentioned that I also spent time at Langley. I actually spent very little time at Langley, which is a measure of success for CIA operations officers. We're always very proud of the fact that we spend most of our careers overseas and not in the Washington area because we didn't join the CIA to, to live in Northern Virginia, although many of us ended up living in Northern Virginia. I actually came back to the States after Hungary and was was fortunate to, to get a job as an executive assistant to really one of the great intelligence leaders of our generation, this or any generation, a fellow named John McLaughlin, who remains a dear friend and mentor. And, and he was the deputy director to the to the director of central intelligence, George Tennant. And so I was very fortunate to be invited to be part of John's staff and team. And I spent uh, several years there in the executive suite at CIA on the seventh floor, helping support Mr. McLaughlin and Mr. Tennant. And that, of course, was amplified and made more serious by, by the fact that I started my job on September 4th, 2001. And so I was coming back from the field, I was getting to know the people I was going to work with. I was figuring out how to log into my computer. Not sure I knew where the men's room was yet. And uh, as I say, uh, seven days later, we were at a, at a staff meeting on the morning of September 11th. And the security teams walked in and asked Mr. McLaughlin and the senior officials that were gathered there that morning uh, to come look at the television. And we got there in time to watch the plane fly into the second tower. And obviously, uh, CIA was quick to discern uh, who was responsible for this and played a prominent role in helping President Bush respond to those attacks and the so-called war on terror that may still be underway, depending on how you define the terms. Anyway, those were a a chaotic and hectic and yet important set of hours and days at Langley. And and that that was my welcome home. And so uh, the, the one thing I do take away from it and would certify to, to your listeners is that the, uh, the leaders of the CIA that day, the leaders of the country that day, all, all performed uh, as we would expect them to, heroically and good sense and wisdom. And um, that started you know, what's become a decade and a half or more of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. intelligence policy, largely, largely shaped by 
addressing the threat posed by Islamic extremism. Well, you did mention previously that these kind of stories need to be told, need to be studied, especially with the CIA's response to 9-11. And I think that goes hand in hand with what you're currently doing with the Intelligence Studies Project. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the project? What led it to be formed? Sure. Again, again, I'm just the beneficiary of a lot of other people's work and some, and some really good luck. So I finished up my, my career with the agency in, in 2014 and and I had some people I knew and liked and respected a great deal here at the University of Texas, people like Admiral Bobby Inman, people like Will Imboden, who was a colleague of mine at the National Security Council staff, people like Bobby Chesney, who leads the Strauss Center. So, so there, there's a great circle of senior people here at the University of Texas, starting with the late President Bill Powers and including President Greg Fenves, who were really serious about supporting the U.S. government, being involved in how we defend the nation. And at a major state university like the University of Texas, that involves teaching and research and public events. And so in 2014, as I was finishing up with with my government service, this was the time when we were reading about in the newspapers, Edward Snowden, you remember that former NSA contractor and former CIA employee who uh, unlawfully, criminally leaked massive amounts of information about sensitive counterterrorism programs, including uh, very controversial electronic surveillance programs, right, that helped the government detect and disrupt acts of terrorism, and at, but at the same time made a number of people uncomfortable wanting to defend their privacy and civil liberties and concerned that their government was perhaps intruding on that in, in an inappropriate way. So these were legitimate national debates that were literally going on every day in 2014 above the fold on the Washington Post and the New York Times. And to oversimplify their, their discussion, Bob Inman and Willem Bowden and President Powers and, and uh, Bobby Chesney all said, you know, which university do you go to to find experts, people who are studying these hard public policy problems? these trade-offs between privacy and civil liberties and which university in the United States do you go to if you're interested in intelligence? This business that here in the United States is a huge enterprise. We have 17 agencies, as you know, right? We have a budget of between 70 and $80 billion, taxpayer dollars, we spend on gathering the information and providing the counsel and advice to policymakers that they're going to need. Easily upwards of 100,000 people or more make their living in this classified world, providing advice and information to U.S. policymakers. So this is a big deal here in the United States, yet nowhere is it really studied very seriously in in an academically rigorous way. And that's what they set out to propose. So they created the Intelligence Studies Project before asking me if I would come here and lead it. And that's exactly what we do. We want to offer students here at the University of Texas in Austin and frankly across the system Uh, the opportunity to study, to take courses, to to read history of intelligence and learn what it is and what role it plays in keeping the nation safe, when it's succeeded and when it's failed, right? And some of the trade-offs, the hard questions of how you nest a secret intelligence organization in an open, transparent democracy, right? These are really hard questions and we expose our students to them. You're, You're suffering through this Weekly, I can test. I can testify. So we offer some courses. We also do some research. 
right? We have a nationwide writing competition that we're going to uh, kick off for the sixth year here in a couple of weeks, named after Bob Inman. We take the best student writing on intelligence in the United States. We invite it. We invite them to send papers into us. We review them closely. We award large cash prizes for the best academic writing on intelligence. And we convene events here on campus that you were part of before we all went to shelter in place. But we do our best to bring down the, the most serious leaders and thinkers of U.S. intelligence to Austin and, and make them stand up in public and answer our questions and, and debate hard issues. Um, and they're happy to do it because they know their jobs are going to be easier if, they, if the American people actually understand who they are and what they do and how seriously they take their work. So all this is the Intelligence Studies Project. It's a heck of a lot of fun to be part of and to lead. We've got a unique group of talented people that are involved. And based on the student feedback we get so far, people are getting something out of it. And it's not just for people that want to go work in intelligence. It's not a training academy. Uh, we want people who are going to be diplomats and Hill staffers and think tankers and academics and professors to know what intelligence is and what it is in a, in a historically rigorous way. And so uh, that's what I've been doing for five years. And and I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. Well, you've actually also been fairly active both at UT, but uh, you were also recently appointed to the Center for Strategic and International Studies Task Force, specifically in technology and intelligence. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about this task force, what, what you think it'll have you do? Sure. Yeah, I was, this is not unusual in Washington. Think tanks like uh, Center for Security Studies at, at Georgetown engage in these kinds of studies. They very often invite former government officials to participate in them. And uh, I was really uh, delighted to be invited by, by Kathleen Hicks and Brian Katz and, and a number of former, former government officials who were putting together this task force on technology and intelligence, right? So, so technology has always been a part of American intelligence from the, as you know, the, the modern American intelligence community was established in 1947, looking back at the, the failure to prevent the Pearl Harbor attacks and looking forward uh, at this global competition, this Cold War that unfolded against the Soviet Union. And one of the great advantages America had in, in the Cold War intelligence competition with the Soviet Union was technology. Uh, U.S. intelligence, CIA in particular, brought you the the U-2 SR-71 aircraft, photo reconnaissance aircraft, the Corona satellite programs, just tremendous technological achievements that allowed us to gather information we needed in the, in the improbable event that we were gonna end up fighting World War III with the Soviet Union. So technology has always been an advantage uh, for the United States. Well, as we all know, our lives have changed dramatically in recent years with the digital revolution, and it is nothing short of a revolution. And so we're trying to, many people are trying to grapple with the consequences of this new digital technology, social networking, mass data, artificial intelligence, biological uh, marking. I mean, there, there are a number of fields that have just taken off and they all have implications for US intelligence, helping us understand what our adversaries are planning and intending to do overseas, even what some of our economic rivals are doing, even what some of our allies are doing. So technology is going to play a part in the success of U.S. intelligence going forward. 
And the field is more diverse now. It's more complicated. China's very accomplished in this area. Russia's very accomplished. Even smaller states like uh, Iran and others, the barriers to entry on technology and hacking and interfering in people's digital networks are very low. And so there are going to be dozens and dozens of states playing in this space. And so this group, this task force that was pulled together at CSIS is going to spend, I think, the better part of a year, series of meetings, a number of workshops and dialogues in between, trying to get a number of experienced and smart people together and, and think through the implications for technology and U.S. intelligence. How do we maintain this advantage that we currently enjoy, a thin advantage right now in some technologies, and we may even lose it in the future. And we want to sort of dissect some of that and make some policy recommendations that hopefully future intelligence leaders or future legislators or, or future occupants of the White House can say, yeah, these sound like some smart things we need to do today uh, to preserve our technology advantage. And so I'm just, just really delighted to join a bunch of, a group of distinguished friends and colleagues uh, to sort this through. Although I bring little to nothing to bear on the, on the technology front, as you, can, as you can testify to, having watched me operate Zoom, uh, one of the things they are planning to wrestle with is, is what are the implications for human intelligence? What are the technological implications? And there are many. And because I've spent some time doing that in my career, they, they found it useful to, to have me join the conversation. There was a WAPO article back earlier in April from Glenn Gerstel, who actually also works for CSIS, outlining four things that the CIA needs to change or do in the coming months. And two of them did more or less include more technology-oriented sort of avenues. Uh, he mentioned more reliance on open sourcing on online, as well as understanding the scope of disinformation that is being pursued by foreign governments. So it sounds like this task force might be keeping you quite busy this summer. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. As I say, since so many of my other uh, intelligence studies project activities were canceled or postponed, I, I have some time on my hands. I'm glad you picked up on, on Glenn's article. Glenn's a, a tremendously great uh, thinker. He was the general counsel at the National Security Agency, uh, recently ended his tenure there. He's been a regular visitor to the University of Texas, done some recruiting at the law school and public speaking for us. And so uh, anything Glenn writes is worth paying attention to. And I'm sure he's going to be one of the many, many experts that the CSIS task force is, is going to talk to, because these, these projects are not about what the members of the task force actually know. It's more about who they know and whose expertise and wisdom and experience they can tap into. And so I'm sure Gwen's will be involved in this project at some point. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for the results of this task force and hopefully prepare for the future. I, I want to thank you, Professor Slick, for joining us today. This has been a really great conversation. Uh, we hope to have you back, hopefully sometime in, with, for an in-person interview in the future once this whole pandemic passes over. It, it's, it's been my pleasure there. I appreciate you sending me the invitation. I, I just saw actually the background behind you that I didn't realize it was the office until I recognized some of the characters. It gives me a laugh. And I'm happy to do it again anytime you wish. You, you know where to find me. And, None of us is moving anywhere quickly. We're just going to be here. Thank you. Good luck, Lara. Take care. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. Slav
Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies.